I think we covered that sufficiently. Uh, but Pentecost is coming up. This is the sixth Sabbath in the count of seven, with Pentecost the day following. So <clears throat> that means after counting six today, we count the next Sabbath, which is the seventh, since the wave sheaf, and then Sunday is Pentecost, the first of June. We will have services here at 11 and 3, with a potluck in between. So those of you out on the phone line can adjust for your time zone as to when to tune in. We, uh, we used to do it at 10.30 and 2.30, but since we are short on the sermonette uh, people, we cut that out of the service, not because it was bad, but because we simply didn't have the personnel really to cover it week by week. So uh, we moved it to 11 and 3 at the, at the plea of those who like to sleep in. Anyway, <clears throat> all that aside, I want to pick up again today on uh, how God would build a temple. And we want to go, first of all, to First Chronicles 22. It had been David's great desire to build a permanent dwelling place for God. As you will recall, uh, we went some over the Ark of the Covenant and how it had been a very, very fancy tent, essentially. Uh, well-built, uh, very well-appointed, uh, carefully decorated, and certainly a wonderful piece of architecture and production. However, this was to be a permanent location for God once a place had been established, and David had very, very much in his heart to do this. So let's pick the story up in chapter 22 of Chronicles. I want to try to get through uh, Solomon's temple today, uh, so I'll, I want to give a certain amount of detail so that it fleshes out properly, but I don't want to get bogged down in reading chapter after chapter uh, so that we get lost in that as well, <clears throat> but to get an overview of what God caused to do to happen, how it happened, and uh, what was used in the construction thereof and a lot of those details. Anyway, David said in chapter 22, This is the house of the eternal God, and this is the altar of the burnt offering for Israel. So he gathered people together, and he said in verse 5, David said, Solomon, my son, is young and tender, and the house that is to be built for the eternal must be exceeding magnificent. Or mag magnifical, he says, <clears throat> in the old King James, of fame and of glory throughout all countries. So David's vision, David's dream, was to be something so absolutely magnificent, so far beyond anything that had ever been done on earth, that it would become a glory throughout all the countries of the world that would somehow come in contact with it. So this was of the true Creator God. There had been many edifices, many temples, many groves to Baal and to other gods, but this was to the true God, the God of creation. And it had to be something that superseded anything before, maybe not after, as we shall see before we're done with this series, but certainly to that date. 
I will therefore now make preparation for it. So David prepared abundantly before his death. Then he called for Solomon his son and charged him to build a house for the eternal God of Israel. And David said to Solomon, My son, as for me, it was in my mind to build a house to the name of the eternal my God. But the word of the eternal came to me, saying, You have shed blood abundantly and has made great wars. You shall not build a house to my name, because you have shed much blood upon the earth in my sight. David wanted to do this with all his heart. And yet God turned him down and said, you won't do it. Now what does the blood and the wars have to do with this? David had many different types of sin in his life. But God singled that out. And I think we'll see it in some of what God used as decoration on this temple. God and His kingdom and His fruits produce peace. So this was to be a symbol of God, a place for God to dwell, and it had to be a house of peace. Now David's life had been a great deal about war. Some of that war was legitimate. Some of that war had to do with the protection of Israel. Some of that warfare, God even uh, accepted and even directed. But it appears that David, from reading through various places about David, that he got to where he enjoyed war too much. Uh, It wasn't a matter of always just taking care of Israel But David was a wholehearted man. If there was anyone who did what he did with all his might, it had to have been David. So when it came to killing, he did it with all his might. And perhaps that was a bit of a flaw in that he came to enjoy warfare and killing too much. I don't know. That's to some degree reading between the lines. But it gives you a little bit of a perspective to start with of how important this house that was to be built, this temple, was to God. David, when all was said and done, was a man after God's own heart. And he will rule all Israel in the kingdom of God forevermore. So God is not putting David away. He is not necessarily in any way diminishing his reward But the typology, the symbolism here, had to be right. And as a house of peace, a place for God to dwell, it had to have specific origins. And David's record in that particular area was not that good. So God turned him down on the project that was the joy of his heart. Think about that a moment. Could David have gotten bitter? Could he have said, Look, God, I'm doing this for you. I've assembled all these things. I've put it all together. I've planned. I've worked at. I've done everything I could do to build a house for you and you are the love of my life. And now you won't let me. A lot of people would have had a bad attitude about then. They might have turned bitter. They might have thought, 
hey, God has rejected me. David didn't. He realized God was right. And he loved God with all his heart, mind, body, and soul. So a disappointment was not going to change his love, his faith, his hope, and his trust in God. What a powerful example for us to overlook things that might turn us off, tune us out, make us upset or bitter or frustrated in the midst of what God is doing in our lives and in His church. It's so easy to allow things to do that to us, but David did not. And this, as I said, was certainly important to him. God had told him, Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. See, peace, of rest. And I will give him rest from all his enemies round about, for his name shall be Solomon, and will give peace and quietness to Israel in his day. Solomon, one of its meanings is peaceable. So, the warring would stop pretty much during the days of Solomon. And in fact, as soon as Solomon was made king, he got rid of some of the enemies of David and of himself immediately so that there could be peace and not conspiracy and, and coups in the works during his reign. So God wanted this house to be built during a time of peace by a man of peace. Well, that shows you the contrast. Now, will Solomon be in the kingdom of God what David will be? I don't think so. And yet, he was the man for the job at the time. Peaceable. Verse 10, He shall give a, build a house for my name, and he shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. Now, my son, the Eternal be with you, and prosper you, and build the house of the Eternal, your God, as he has said of you. And then he told him that he had the wisdom and the understanding that he was to be strong and of good courage, dread not, nor be dismayed. In other words, this will not be an easy project. So be of good courage and be strong. Now he tells us here at the end time, uh, when we are called upon to build a temple or temples, the same things. When you're facing adversity, a great challenge, a great project, you have to be strong and of good courage, not fear and trust God. Now notice this. Now behold, in my trouble, verse 14, I have prepared for the house of the eternal. These are things that David had done. Set aside for the temple. A hundred thousand talents of gold. They're not sure, the scholars, uh, historians, exactly how much that was, but they said that a, th a talent of silver was about an, an estimate 94.6 pounds, and the gold was double that, a talent of gold. So I just took the figures 100 and 200 for simplicity and kind of multiplied that out. That is 10,000 tons of gold. 10,000 tons. That's a lot of gold. It was 50,000 tons of silver. And of brass and iron without weight. 
For it is an abundance timber also, and stone have I prepared, and you may add thereto. So David tells Solomon, here's what I've set aside. You can add to it. Now this was not a large building. It wasn't the Sears Tower or the new one in Dubai that's the tallest on earth or anything. This was a fairly small building. Actually smaller than this one we're meeting in today. Uh, we'll see the dimensions here in a little bit. Moreover, there are workmen with you in abundance, hewers and workers of stone and timber, and all manner of cunning men of every manner of work. The gold, the silver, the brass, the iron, there is no number. Arise, therefore, and be doing, and the Eternal be with you. So, David was old and died. Uh, you get to chapter 23, and he had set aside a priesthood and people to do this job, and then the priests set up in their courses and so on, as the next couple of chapters show, to take care of the temple that was to be built, to make sure that everything was consecrated and holy and godlike and done the way God would want it done for a house for himself. We are kings and priests as well, as we are told in uh, Revelation 5.10. So God set people aside to be sure everything was done right. This was, this was an incredible project. If you had Home Depot bring you out 60,000 tons of gold and silver and uh, how many truckloads of iron and brass and so on, uh, it would stagger you, wouldn't it? I mean, a little pile of lumber to build a house and we get kind of excited. But look at what was brought for this. Let's go on to chapter 28. Again, David, here at the end of his life, in chapter, or chapter 28, verse 2, Then David the king stood upon his feet and said, Hear me, my brethren and my people. As for me, I had in my heart to build a house of rest for the ark of the covenant of the eternal and for the footstool of our God and made ready for the building. But God said, You're not going to do it because you've been a man of war and have shed blood. Verse 9, And you, Solomon, my son, know you, the God of your father, so, the preparations for the building weren't all physical here. There was attitude preparation, there was instruction on what approach he should take. David was very concerned about this. Know you the God of your father, and serve him with a perfect heart and with a willing mind. If you're going to take on a project for God, it needs to be with those attitudes, a perfect heart, a heart prepared to do God's will no matter what, and a willing mind, or a ready mind as it's put in another place in the Bible. For the eternal searches all hearts and understands all the imaginations of the thoughts. So don't think you can hide from God. Don't think you can pretend to be doing something holy and righteous as a godly project and try to hide the evil that is within a human heart. Get rid of it as much as is humanly possible with God's help. 
If you seek him, he will be found of you. How many places do you see a statement similar to that in the Bible? This isn't going to be automatic. It isn't going to be easy. You have to prepare your heart. You have to make your mind ready and willing. You have to seek God and find him. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. <clears throat> so be careful or take heed now. For the Eternal has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. Don't be in some respects as Moses was when he first was told what his job was to be. Well, but I can't speak. But I'm this and I'm that. No. Accept the job God has given you. Prepare your heart and mind and emotions and go do it. Don't hem-haw around. And after this warning then, David gave to Solomon his son the pattern of the porch and the house and the treasuries and the upper chambers and the inner parlors and the pattern of all that he had by the Spirit of the courts of the house of the Eternal. So God apparently had revealed to David just how he wanted this house built. And it had to be done just so. It had to be done according to God's will and way. Also for the courses of the priests and the Levites and all the work of the service of the house of the eternal and so on. Verse 20, And David said to Solomon his son, Be strong and of good courage and do it. Fear not nor be dismayed, for the eternal God, even my God, will be with you. He will not fail you nor forsake you until you have finished all the work for the service of the house of the eternal. God is not going to put you on a big project without giving you the help, the strength, the guidance, His presence to get the job done. Now, in addition to what David had amassed from the kingdom for the temple of God, we go down to chapter 29 and... He says at the end of verse 1, God has chosen, the man God has chosen, is yet young and tender, and this work is great. For the palace is not for man, but for the eternal God. It's called a temple, it's called a house of God, and it's also here called a palace. Now I have prepared with all my might, David had really put his heart into it, when he had conceived the idea, taken it to God, and been backed by it, he put his heart into the project. All his might, he says. For things to be made of gold and the silver for things of silver... Wait, wait a minute. Let's see, where was I going here? I prepared my might for the house of my God, the gold for things to be made of gold and silver and brass and so on, and precious stones, uh, marble... Verse 3, Moreover, because I have set my affection to the house of my God, your money is where your heart is. He had set his affection on it, so he says, I have of my own proper good, not what had been amassed in the kingdom in terms of wealth, government money in other words, but of his own pocket. Here is the offering he gave. 
He says, I have of my own proper good of gold and silver, which I have given to the house of my God, over and above all that I have prepared for the holy house, out of his own pocket then, 3,000 talents of gold of the gold of Ophir, and 7,000 talents of refined silver to overlay the walls of the house, houses withal. Now that would amount to, using the figures I used, 300 or three. 300 tons of his own personal fortune of gold. 350 tons of silver. So add that to the total of we had above, and we're not done yet. Then he asked, in the end of verse 5, Who is willing to consecrate his service this day to the eternal? And then the chief of the fathers and princes of the tribes, the captains of thousands and hundreds, with the rulers of the king's work, offered willingly. So not only David, but the leaders of Israel also had an offering for the house of God. And gave for the service of the house of God of, go, of, God, of gold 5,000 talents, 10,000 drams, and 10,000 drams, and of silver 10,000 talents, and of brass 18,000 talents, and 100,000 talents of iron. I didn't figure up the iron and the brass. That's, that's an awful lot of tons. And they with whom precious stones were found gave them to the treasure of the house of the eternal. So, uh, the building things and the decorative things as well. Now, that which the officers gave amounted to 500 tons of gold and 500 tons of silver. So, we've got 10,800 tons of gold and 55,000 tons of silver so far here. It, well, at least, if I added all three together right. <clears throat> anyway, it's more than we can imagine, uh, one way or another. Now, let's go to First Kings 5. There's more here in Chronicles, but I want to go back here, because he adds some details that I, I think is good for us to see. First Kings 5. So Solomon began uh, to do this thing, and he had set aside the people, he had set aside the food, the wages, the things that they might need to do this job. This was an incredible task. Chapter 5, Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon, for he had heard that they had anointed him king in the room of his father, for Hiram was ever a lover of David. Hiram and David got along very well. And Hiram wanted this to continue. Hiram was, and the people with him, a very, very skilled craftsman, a very organized and capable, competent man. And Solomon sent to Hiram and said, You know, my father couldn't build a house, uh, but now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side, again, uh, showing peace, so that there is neither adversary nor evil occurrence. In other words, I can set my mind single-mindedly on this project. Verse 5, And behold, I purpose to build a house to the name of the Eternal my God, as the Eternal spoke to David my father, saying, Your son, whom I will set upon your throne in your room, he shall build a house to my name. Uh, he, verse 13, raised a levy out of Israel to do this. 
30,000 men, and they went to cut wood for it. Uh, he sent them to Lebanon 10,000 a month by courses. A month they were in Lebanon, two months at home, and Adoniram was over the levy. And he had three score and 10,000, 70,000 that bore burdens, and four score thousand hewers in the mountains. 80,000 people cutting trees. Now Hiram, I don't know that it's in this context, but it says that he, Hiram had said he would float wood from Lebanon, cedars and fir, uh, over to Jerusalem and Mount Moriah where this was being done. And uh, let's see, 18 Solomon's builders and Hiram's builders did hew them in the stone squares, so they prepared timber and stones to build a house. So timber and stones, cut stones in this case. In chapter 6 then, uh, verse 2, The house which King Solomon built for the eternal, the length thereof was threescore cubits, and the breadth thereof twenty cubits, and the height thereof thirty cubits. Now a cubit can vary. A cubit was about eighteen inches. Another cubit was reckoned at twenty, and the royal cubit perhaps at twenty-five point something inches. I forget exactly. Uh, but let's just use the, the common cubit to get an idea. Uh, it was roughly 90 to 100 feet long, a little shorter than this building, 30 feet wide. This one's 50, so it came out about from somewhere along here to that wall. Uh, let's say 30 by 90, <clears throat> just in general terms. And the height, 30 cubits, so about 40 feet, 5 feet high. This building's 19, over twice as tall as this building. <clears throat> And the porch before the temple of the house, 20 cubits the length thereof, 30 feet, according to the breadth of the house, and 10 cubits was the breadth thereof before the house. Now, there's another place, I don't know whether it says it here, maybe in Chronicles, it talks about how it was also 100, the porch was 180 feet high. That's 18 stories. The building itself was about 45 feet, and the front porch went up to 180 feet. Those are general terms, again, depending on which cubit you use, but the math was easier with the 18 inches uh, instead of going the other way. They may have used the royal cubit here, so it may have been a little bigger than what I've described. Let's go to verse 7. And the house, when it was in building, was built of stone, made ready before it was brought there, so that there was neither hammer, nor axe, nor any tool of iron heard in the house while it was in building. That is an incredible feat. Have you been around when people built a house? You hear saws and you hear hammers. You hear all kinds of noises when we build a house in modern times. And would have then, if someone were just building a house and, and shaping stones and cutting wood, the sound of the axe, the sound of the, the hammers and, and so on would be heard. Now, this was to be a house of peace again. No confusion, quietly done. That's the way the pyramids in uh, Egypt were also built. Those stones were fitted and then taken there over a long period of time. I saw an article the other day, I didn't read it all, that uh, said that science has now finally figured out how they did it. After all the incredible skyscrapers and various projects that we have across the world, 
they still didn't have any clue as to how they shaped those stones and got them where they are and then got them in place. But they had the technology to do it. Whether they discovered that yet or not, I don't know. Uh, you know, the, all kinds of articles can be written. But that was a monster project, and so was this. You had to have craftsmen to cut those stones so they were smooth and perfect, and when you brought them in and set them in place, everything fit perfectly. Now, God had to give skill to the workers. The door for the middle chamber was in the right side of the house and went up with winding stairs. He built the house and finished it, verse 9, and covered the house with beams and boards of cedar. And then he built chambers. Verse 11, And the word of the Eternal came to Solomon, saying, See, there's, there's still things here in attitude and instruction for human beings that was very important to God. Concerning this building which you are in building, if you will walk in my statutes and execute my judgments and keep all my commandments to walk in them, then will I perform my word with you which I spoke to David your father. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and I will not forsake my people Israel. So Solomon built the house and finished it. And he goes into some detail about the cedar and the walls and the floor. He covered them on the inside with wood and covered the floor of the house with planks of fir and so on. <clears throat> Verse 18, And the cedar of the house was covered with knops, or my margin says gourds, and open flowers. All was cedar, and there was no stone seen. So the stones that were used were covered up with aromatic wood of cedar and fir, and the oracle he prepared in the house within to set there the Ark of the Covenant of the Eternal. So the Ark of the Covenant would be moved to this permanent temple. Now notice verse 20 speaking of the oracle or the, the, the room apparently for the Ark. He overlaid it with pure gold and so covered the altar which was of cedar. So Solomon overlaid the house within with pure gold. And he made a partition by the chains of gold before the oracle, and he overlaid it with gold. So the whole inside of this building was covered with gold. Nothing could be seen of stone or wood. All gold. And I doubt if it was a very thin gold. I imagine they slathered it on. Imagine a building not nearly as large as this one, and having tons and tons of gold and silver, tens of thousands of tons, to do it with. Verse 22, And the whole house he overlaid with gold, until he had finished all the house. Also the altar that was by the oracle he overlaid with gold. And within the oracle he made two cherubims of olive tree. And we're going to get into perhaps a little symbolism here in a few minutes about why he used the various things in here that he did in terms of decoration. Two cherubims of olive tree, each ten cubits high. Five cubits was the one wing of the cherub. That would be about, oh, roughly seven and a half feet long. And five cubits, the other wing of the cherub, from the outer, utmost part of the one wing to the utmost part of the other were ten cubits. So about fifteen feet wing spread on these cherubim. That would be pretty impressive. 
carved carabem of pure gold with a 15-foot wingspan and a building that those would appear very large in. They weren't just a small decoration sitting over on an end table somewhere. 15 feet in a building 30 feet wide is pretty good size. It takes up half the width. The other carob was 10 cubits. Both the carabem are of one measure and one size. The height was 10 cubits, 15 feet high. <clears throat> Their wings touched one another in the midst of the house, into verse 27. And he overlaid the carabims with gold. And he carved all the walls of the house round about with carved figures of carabims and palm trees and open flowers within and without. Why palm trees? Why carabs? Why open flowers? Verse 30, And the floor of the house he overlaid with gold, within and without. So floors, ceiling, walls, decorations, all covered with pure gold. Thousands of tons of it. And for the entering of the oracle he made doors of olive tree. The little inside posts were a fifth part of the wall. Two doors also were of olive tree, and he carved upon them cherubim and palm trees and open flowers, overlaid them with gold, and spread gold upon the cherubims and upon the palm trees. And on and on and on, everything was covered with gold. Cherubims, verse 35, palm trees, open flowers. And the inner court, uh, verse 36, had three rows of huge stone and a row of cedar beams, and so on. Now, there's another place, uh, I think it's probably all in uh, Chronicles, where they also made uh, a sea, that is a, a big tub that would hold water, uh, out of fine brass, and twelve oxen, three pointing each of the, of the directions, north, south, east, and west, with their heads faced outward, and they were posts that helped hold up the sea or the laver or the, the thing that held the water. Now, they were not of gold. They were of brass. They were to be of use, perhaps, in the sacrifices and would get a certain amount of wear, and brass would hold up far better than gold. And I think, perhaps, also, this was a house of God covered totally with gold, and we'll get a little bit to the, perhaps, meaning of some of these things. Let's look at that a little bit. Why palms? John twelve thirteen. I think for sake of time I won't go there, but you remember Christ's entry into Jerusalem, and they got palm limbs, palm fronds as we call them, and waved them in front of Christ as he came. This was to be a house for who? For God. So palm fronds were used in Christ's entrance into Jerusalem. And he was to enter this temple built in Jerusalem. And the house would contain decoration of palm fronds. Uh, also, Leviticus 23.40, uh, palms were included in, use, in building the booths to live in at the Feast of Tabernacles. What does the Feast of Tabernacles picture? The kingdom of God on earth when the Father and Son will be here ruling and peace will come to the earth. So the house of God will encompass the earth 
And that which pictures that uh, included buildings of palm fronds to live under. So the palm fronds, I think, uh, clearly would indicate God, God's presence, and looking forward to God's kingdom. The commentaries didn't really have much to say about these things, so I just kind of got to thinking about it a little bit and came up with some thoughts, and there may be certainly much more symbolism involved. But what about open flowers? That one kind of got me for a, a little bit. I kind of thought it through. Will not God's government and the kingdom of God bloom all over the earth? When you look out over a field of flowers... Uh, this time of year up on Kalab in Zion, uh, there are areas there around Kalab Reservoir where there's entire meadows of flowers open. Just gorgeous. And you sit and look at those and you, it almost takes your breath there's so many flowers. And you have a peaceful feeling. Open flowers, that which is blooming. Now in contrast, if you go to Isaiah 40... He says, what is the message that should be given? And he says that men are as grass and as in flowers that fade. And most of the places in the Bible that talk about flowers compare them to men who are fading and withering. Not open flowers, but those that are closing up and dying. So mankind in this world, the first 6,000 years, and especially here at the end of the age are withering, going south, dying. So God used open flowers on His house, and I think that translates to the millennium when things will not wither and die, but open and bloom and be beautiful and peaceful. So open flowers has a probably a very significant symbolism here. Uh, Song of Songs. Uh, 2 and verse 12. I think I will go back and read that. Song of Songs. Well, if I can find it. It's just a little bitty thing in here. Uh, Chapter 2 and uh, down about verse 12. Well, verse 10, My beloved spoke and said to me, Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. For lo, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth. The time of the singing of birds has come, and the voice of the turtle, or the dove, is heard in our land. The fig tree puts forth her green figs. The vines with the tender grape give a good smell. Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. So here Christ is talking about entering in with his bride, coming away from what besets her, and it appears to be in the spring of the year, could be Passover time or thereafter, sometime between, let's say, Passover and Pentecost is an outside date in terms of the spring and what is described here. But notice how he ties this together in chapter 5 and verse 13. Uh, Well, 11, it's speaking of her beloved, speaking of the bride. My beloved is white and ruddy, the chiefest among ten thousand. His head is as the most fine gold. His locks are bushy and black as a raven. 
His eyes are as the eyes of doves by the rivers of waters, washed with milk and fitly set. His cheeks are as a bed of spices, as sweet flowers. His lips like lilies, dropping sweet-smelling myrrh. So he uses flowers here, uh, or she does in that sense, uh, to describe Christ. Uh, He's peaceful. He's beautiful. uh, He has everything about him. uh, The the scent, the look, everything. She can't help but use some of these things as she describes what Christ is like. Here again we have God's house for the Father, but particularly at this point for Christ who was the God of the Old Testament who did the creating and all of these things and had to do with Israel. All right, let's go to cherubims. Why would he have those? I think that one's pretty self-evident. Around God's throne today, the cherubim are there and they cover the throne and their wings go over. So to make a house for God, it would only be appropriate to have the cherubims. And they were... uh, probably the largest decoration within this house. The flowers and those types of things would have been smaller, the palms, uh, but the cherubim were 15 feet high and 15 feet wide, two of them. So they would have covered, if they were across the end, they would have covered the whole end, 15 feet and 15 feet 30, thereabouts. And then he mentions a lion. I don't know whether we read that particular one or not. A uh, lion is part of the decoration. Now, there's, isn't a lion uh, an animal of prey, a predator? Why would you have a lion in a peaceful place like this? Well, there's a reference to Christ. Revelation 5, verses 5 through 10. Uh, I think I'll turn back to that one right quickly. Revelation 5. And let's pick it up about verse 5. One of the elders, they're talking about here opening the seven seals. Verse 5, And one of the elders said to me, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, speaking of Christ having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent forth to all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and and twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints. And then it talks about God redeeming us by the blood of out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation and has made us to our God kings and priests and we shall reign on the earth. So the lion is there as a symbol of Christ, the lion of Judah. He will bring peace to the earth. He will come as a predator first. He will have to open the seven seals. There will be much death and destruction Because man will turn and fight God. The whole earth will turn and fight Christ when he comes. So the lion is thrown in there to show that not only does he have the power of peace, the palms, the cherubim, the flowers, 
but he also has the power and the might to put down nations and kingdoms and cause them to turn and worship God. So you have to have that in there. It isn't a prominent feature, perhaps, as much as the other, but it's there. You need the lion of the tribe of Judah, who smote the bear and the lion, to be able... Well, David did, but he was a type of Christ as David was out of his root. Then you had oxen, the twelve oxen holding up the sacrifice, the sacrificial tub or sea, they call it, a huge basin of water, a sea. Uh, The best that a commentary I found could come up with is that uh, Israel had made a golden calf. And and Solomon then, or David had planned this, or God had, to have twelve oxen there to show that an oxen isn't to be worshipped, but it's best as a post to hold up a sacrificial sea or or tub of water. I kind of doubt that. I think it ought to have a lot more meaning than that. Uh, Why twelve in that case, and in any sense? And why would you have something there to symbolize a false god, a golden calf. That doesn't make much sense to me. But what about Israel? These were of fine brass, and they were oxen. What does an oxen do? An oxen is a beast of burden, or a working animal. They are used to plow, to plant crops, in the harvest of crops, and even in the winnowing of the grain afterward, in some cases. So they were there to produce a crop, or we might say fruits, or people. And who will be in the kingdom of God? Twelve tribes of Israel, the first fruits, the bride, 144,000. So do these oxen represent... The twelve tribes of Israel who need the sacrifices that they were holding up here in terms of this basin to wash and clean? Perhaps so. I don't know. Uh, It's it's only a guess, but the number twelve grabs me pretty hard. And the fact that they were working animals and we will be there as servants to help uh, build the kingdom and so on. And will be part of the house of God, as we shall see later on. I don't want to go there today. Well, those are just some thoughts. What about the olive wood? Uh, Let me give you some quick scriptures on that. Why would he have doors of olives, door frames of olive wood, and so much olive wood in a house of God? Jeremiah 11. Jeremiah 11 and verse 16. Maybe you'll get there before I do. I'm having trouble finding today. Chapter 11, and here I want verse 16. Verse 15, What man... What has my beloved to do in my house, seeing she has worked lewdness with many, and the holy flesh is passed from you? When you do evil, then you rejoice. The Eternal called your name a green olive tree, fair or beautiful, and of goodly fruit, 
An olive tree represents good production, beautiful. With the noise of a great tumult, he has kindled fire upon it, and the branches of it are broken. So the olive tree did not produce what it should. Israel did not. And even though it had been made to be beautiful and productive, it was destroyed, taken into captivity. So that gives you an idea of what God intends olive wood to be like. Romans 11. <clears throat> and here, verse 17, I think it is. And if some of the branches be broken off, and you, you were, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them partake of the root and fatness of the olive tree. And he talks about it here and how he grafted in the Gentiles. Verse 24, For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these, which be the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? And then he talks about all Israel being saved and so on. And here it is about the Gentiles being grafted into the good olive tree. So, the olive tree represents a righteous harvest. A good, productive plant is the olive tree. Uh, Zechariah 4, verse 3, talks about the two olive trees there, speaking of the two witnesses, from whom the golden oil comes out to feed all seven of the churches. So, olive oil represents God's Word, that which brings nutrition and health and strength. Uh, Deuteronomy 28.40, I'll not turn there again for sake of time, but it says olive oil was used for anointing, Deuteronomy 28, verse 40. We don't use uh, cooking oil. Well, olive oil can be cooking oil, but I mean, I don't have canola oil in my bottle uh, when you get anointed. <laughs> Anointing oil comes from the olive tree, from olives, because it represents something very wholesome and very good and is a representative of God's Spirit and God's power coming to help. So the olive tree uh, and olive wood was very significant in the building of this house of God because it is a representation of righteousness and the power and the Spirit of God. Now, what about pomegranates? We've all eaten pomegranates, haven't we? Uh, or attempted to. They're kind of a pretty fruit, and, uh, but they're full of seeds and hard to eat. And they're kind of a, not really a fully sweet flavor, but uh, all in all, a good fruit, and certainly a very nutritious fruit is the pomegranate. And he had pomegranates all over this temple. I don't know that I read all of that, but they were there as well. Uh, let's go to Exodus 28. There's a lot of very deep meaning in what God used here. He could have used anything to decorate this, but he had to have things that were important to him and to his purposes. Uh, Exodus 28:34. Speaking here of the garments that Aaron was to wear, the holy garments, uh, verse 33, And beneath upon the hem of it you shall make pomegranates of blue and of purple and of scarlet, round about the hem thereof. So pomegranates, but different colors uh, of pomegranate in terms of decoration. 
and bells of gold between them round about, a golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate upon the hem of the robe round about. So alternating the two all the way around Aaron's holy garment. So here he associates pomegranates with holy garments, with a holy priesthood. So I think the symbolism of a pomegranate becomes quite clear when you see it on these holy garments. This was a holy temple, a holy house of God. It was to have a holy priesthood take care of it and be sure that everything was done in a proper and holy manner. So God clearly uses pomegranates as a symbol of holiness. Haggai 2.19 talks about this. Uh, it says, and that's in the building of the latter temple, Haggai 2 verse 19. It says, has the vine and the fig tree and the pomegranate and the olive produced yet? So two of those were used as ornaments in the temple of God. So the pomegranates could be speaking in terms of Haggai of the priesthood, the olive trees of the two witnesses, or of the oil and the uh, or the oil of God for the anointing and healing of God's people. So the symbolism attached here in Exodus also carries through into another temple yet to be built. Now I want to go to 1 Kings 8. We'll start wrapping this up with some important things that were done. If you build a fine building, use the best materials available and known to man on the face of the earth, and it's just gold, and it's just silver, and it's just iron, and just brass, and just wood, what good is it? Pretty, but what does it accomplish? It's just a building. We built a very fine building in Pasadena and dedicated it to the great God. And it had a little gold on it. It didn't have any thousands of tons. <laughs> it had a little bit of thin plating here and there. But it was, all in all, a very beautifully designed building. But the church apostatized the building was abandoned by God's people, and I think by God, and today it's just another building. It has no significant spiritual meaning today. I've been and seen it since, and it doesn't even look like it used to, with what's going on around it and within it and so on. So, you can go out of your way to do something wonderful as we've been reading, this is, blows your mind if you stop to think about what all was put into this building. I don't know whether they used it all or not, but it was there to use. Chapter 8 of 1 Kings. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes and so on uh, in the city of David, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel, verse 2, assembled themselves to King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month. So they came to keep the feast. Verse 12, Then spake, spoke Solomon, The Eternal said that he would dwell in the thick darkness. I have surely built you a house to dwell in, a settled place for you to abide in forever. So this is at the dedication of the temple. 
And Solomon addresses the situation. And the king turned his face about and blessed all the congregation of Israel, and all the congregation of Israel stood. So this is a momentous time. They had all, Israel had been brought forward to the dedication of the house of the great God, as it's called in Ezra. And they all stood. So this was a, this was a moment, if you will, an epiphany. An important moment. And he said, Blessed be the eternal God of Israel, which spoke with his mouth to David my father, and has with his hand fulfilled it, saying, Since the day that I brought forth my people Israel out of Mitzrayim, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel to build a house, that my name might be therein. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. And it was in the heart of David, my father, to build a house for the name of the eternal God of Israel. So Solomon gives a little background and uh, a brush up on what had occurred historically and how this came to be. And the eternal said to David, my father, whereas it was in your heart to build a house to my name, you did well, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless... You shall not build a house, but your son that shall come forth out of your loins, he shall build a house to my name. So again, it's reiterated that this had to be not David for the reasons we discussed, but his son in a time of peace. And the Eternal has performed his word that he spoke, and I am risen up in the room of David my father and sit on the throne of Israel, as the Eternal promised, and have built a house for the name of the Eternal God of Israel. I've set a place for the ark, wherein is the covenant of the eternal, which he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Mitzrayim. And Solomon stood before the altar of the eternal in the presence of all the congregation of Israel and spread forth his hands toward heaven. He gave a speech first to the people, showing how this came to be. And in this dedication, since it was to be the house of God, he gave this prayer. Uh, I want to read the prayer out of 1 Kings 8 instead of here, because there's something that occurred there that... No, wait a minute. Uh, yeah, let's go to 1 Kings 8. Let's read it there. It, it's, it's in both places. But I had in my notes uh, to read it from 1 Kings. Uh, Let's pick it up then, the prayer in verse 22. And Solomon stood before the altar of the Eternal in presence of all the congregation of Israel and spread forth his hands toward heaven. And he said, Eternal God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath who keep covenant and mercy with your servants that walk before you with all their heart. How many times do we come across that expression, all your heart, throughout the entire Bible? So when he addresses God, he says, you are the great God, the only God, and we are a people who need to walk before you with all our heart. Who have kept with your servant David, my father, that you, that you promised him. You spoke also with my mouth, and have fulfilled it with your hands, as it is this day. He gives God the credit, not himself here. Therefore now, eternal God of Israel, 
Keep with your servant David my father that you promised him, saying, There shall not fail you a man in my sight to sit on the throne of Israel, so that your children take heed to their way, that they walk before me as you have walked before me. And now, O God of Israel, let your word, I pray you, be verified. In other words, show your hand. Let us see that you verify what has happened here. Verse 27, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? (laughs) We've built this building. (laughs) It's here. Are you going to come dwell in it? You know, it would kind of dash our hopes if we built this for you and you said, Nah, don't think so. Isn't nice enough. Isn't good enough. It doesn't meet my specs and my purposes. So Solomon, I, I think, was pretty assured what would occur, but still he asks, Are you going to come live in this now that we've built it? Behold, the heaven and heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have builded. You're the God of the universe. The earth is your footstool. This is just a little house that's, you know, 30 by 90 or whatever, generally. It won't contain you, O great God. In other words... Solomon is being humble here and saying, we did our best, Father, but, you know, is this acceptable to you? Will you come do this? Verse 28, Yet have you respect to the prayer of your servant and to his supplication, O eternal my God, to hearken to the cry and to the prayer which your servant prays before you today, that your eyes may be open toward this house night and day, even toward the place of which you have said, My name shall be there. That was in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah where they built it. That's in Chronicles. Verse 30, And hearken you to the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they shall pray toward this place. In other words, will you be here and will you also hear us when we come here to talk to you? The relationship between man and God, Israel and God, through this house was the truly important thing because otherwise it's just physical materials. And hear you in heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. What good is having a God if He will not hear you and will not heal you and forgive you? Now we have a God right now who has that great power. But the temple we built and Worldwide Church of God did not meet God's specs. He abandoned it, scattered it, destroyed it. For what? Lack of wholeheartedness, lackadaisical attitudes, worldly attitudes, not worshiping God with the whole heart. Now God could have done the very same thing right here. But David was, if nothing else, wholehearted in his worship of God. Mistakes he made, but he repented wholeheartedly. He changed wholeheartedly. He overcame. And when he built or prepared to build the temple, boy, did he amass a fortune. Tens of thousands of tons. When you count the iron and brass, hundreds of thousands of tons. And the stones and the wood. 
to be assembled for this house. He put his life into it. And Solomon did as well. Now is God going to recognize and hear and forgive when his people turn to him with his whole heart? That's the prayer here. Verse 31, If any man trespass against his neighbor, and an oath be laid upon him to cause him to swear, and the oath come before your altar in this house, then hear you in heaven, and do, and judge your servants, condemning the wicked to bring his way upon his head, and justifying the righteous to give him according to his righteousness. So he said, Let this be a house of proper judgment, of evil and of good so that there be justice in the land, as there is not in our land today. When your people Israel be smitten down before the enemy, because they have sinned against you, and shall turn again to you, and confess your name, and pray, and make supplication to you in this house, would Israel sin? Would God turn away? Would God send them into captivity? Yes, He would. And yes, He did. Solomon's prayer is that if and when we do this, and we turn to you, will you forgive us? Will you bring us back? This is important for you and me right here. Powerful lesson for us who have gone away and been taken into captivity and scattered into the world, the church of God. Will he, if we turn with our heart, forgive and reassemble? And built. It was Solomon's question. It's our question. It's our prayer. Here is his request, verse 34. Then hear you in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them again into the land which you gave to their fathers. Are we poised now at the edge of the promised land to go back in and do what God wants done? When heaven is shut up and there is no rain, because they have sinned against you, if they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear you in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants and of your people Israel, that you teach them the good way wherein they should walk and give rain upon your land, which you have given to your people for an inheritance." If there be in the land famine, if there be pestilence, blasting, mildew, locust, or if there be caterpillar, if their enemy besiege them in the land of their cities, whatsoever plague, whatsoever sickness there be, what prayer and supplication whatsoever be made by man, any man, or by all your people Israel, which shall know every man the plague of his own heart, and spread forth his hands toward this house. Then hear you in heaven, your dwelling place, and forgive, and do, and give to every man according to his ways, Ezekiel 33, whose heart you know, for you know, for even you only know the hearts of all the children of men. And God will have to judge each on his own merit. Ezekiel 33 points that out. That they may fear you all the days that they live in the land which you gave to our fathers. Fearing God is the beginning of wisdom. Moreover, concerning a stranger that is not of your people Israel, but comes out of a far country for your name's sake, 
We're talking about a gathering soon, are we not? For they shall hear of your great name, and of your strong hand, and of your stretched out arm, when he shall come and pray toward this house. So strangers who are not of Israel can come and pray toward this house, Solomon says. Hear you in heaven your dwelling place, and do according to all that the stranger calls to you for. Doesn't matter whether you're Israelite or a stranger. If he comes and prays before this house, please hear him, Father, that all people of the earth may know your name, to fear you as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house which I have built is called by your name. This magnificent building was later destroyed. And God talks about other temples that need to be built or would be built in the future. Herod's temple, Ezra's temple, and so on. Or Ezra's and then rebuilt by Herod. And I won't go on with that thought because it carries on several more steps including one that is yet to be built here in the end time before Christ returns. So this is important for us to consider. What a prayer. Verse 44, If your people go out to battle against their enemy whatsoever, you shall send them, and shall pray to the Eternal toward the city which you have chosen, and toward the house that I have built for your name. Then hear you in heaven their prayer and their supplication, and maintain their cause. If they sin against you, for there is no man that sins not, and you be angry with them and deliver them to the enemy so that they carry them away captives to the land of the enemy, far or near. Yet if they shall bethink themselves in the land where they were carried captives and repent and make supplication to you in the land of them that carried them captives, saying, We have sinned and have done perversely. We have committed wickedness. And so return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies which led them away captive and pray to you toward their land which you gave to their fathers, the city which you have chosen, Jerusalem, and your house, the temple, which I have built for your name. Then hear you their prayer and their supplication in heaven, your dwelling place, and maintain their cause. This is quite a prayer. It covers thousands of years, and it's just as real today as we are about to build a latter temple when the former temple, Worldwide Church of God, was scattered and taken captive. It's a prayer that fits you and me. Hear our prayer and our supplication. Verse 50, And forgive your people that have sinned against you, and all their transgressions wherein they have transgressed against you, and give them compassion before them who carried them captive, that they may have compassion on them. For they be your people and your inheritance, which you brought forth out of Mitzrayim from the midst of the furnace of iron, that your eyes may be open to the supplication of your servant and to the supplication of your people Israel, to hearken to them in all that they call for unto you. For you did separate them from among all the people of the earth. We read that, I think, last week. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. A particular, redeemed, called out people. Set aside. Speaking of the church of God. 
Verse 54, And it was so that when Solomon had made an end of praying, all this prayer and supplication to the Eternal, he arose from the altar of the Eternal, from kneeling on his knees, with his hands spread up to heaven, and stood and blessed all the congregation of Israel with a loud blessing, saying, Blessed be the Eternal that has given rest to his people Israel according all that he promised. There has not failed one word of all his good promise which he promised by the hand of Moses his servant. He would brought them into this land. He had driven their enemies out. He had blessed them. And now they had built in Jerusalem a magnificent house for God to dwell in. The Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. So he prayed first to God and then he instructed the people and encouraged them. Not that he not leave us nor forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to him to walk in all his ways to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, which he commanded our fathers. And let these my words, wherewith I have made supplication before the Eternal, be near to the Eternal our God day and night, that he maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel at all times as the matter shall require, that all the people of the Eternal, of the earth, may know that the Eternal is God and there is none else. There are other places where God shows us in the prophecies that very soon now the whole earth is going to know that God is God. That has never been accomplished yet. Solomon prayed it. He instructed the people that this was a goal and a purpose, and it is about to happen on this earth. So he gives them instruction. Let your heart therefore be perfect with the eternal our God, to walk in his statutes and to keep his commandments as at this day. And the king and all Israel with him offered sacrifice before the eternal, their, their God. Now I want to turn to Second Chronicles 7. Because something very, very important happened next. God answered. He answered this prayer. He answered this people's heart. He answered Solomon's heart. Second Chronicles 7, verse 1. Now when Solomon had made an end of praying, the fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Eternal filled the house. And the priest could not enter into the house of the Eternal because the glory of the Eternal had filled the Eternal's house. And when all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Eternal upon the house, they bowed themselves with their faces to the ground upon the pavement and worshipped and praised the Eternal, saying, For He is good, for His mercy endures forever. Verse 12, And the Eternal appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place to myself for a house of sacrifice. If I shut up heaven that there be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways. 
Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land.